The following sermon, entitled Praying to Our Heavenly Father, was preached on the morning of April 24th, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. We read the sacred scriptures this morning in two places, first in Genesis 3, and then in Matthew 3, the temptation of our first parents, and then the temptation of the second Adam, our Savior Jesus Christ. First Genesis chapter 3, here we will read the first seven verses. And what we want to notice is the contrast in how the devil tempts first Eve and then Christ. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die." And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now let's turn to Matthew chapter 3 and 4. Begin reading at Matthew 3 verse 13, the account of Jesus' baptism, as that too has bearing on the sermon. And we'll read through chapter 4 verse 11 through the temptations. Matthew 3 verse 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. For John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, 
and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him Behold, the angels came and ministered unto him. It's on the basis of these passages that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 46. This is found in the back of our songbooks on page 25 after the various songs. Lord's Day 46. Why hath Christ commanded us to address God thus, our Father, that immediately in the very beginning of our prayer He might excite in us a childlike reverence for and confidence in God, which are the foundation of our prayer, namely that God has become our Father in Christ and will much less deny us what we ask of Him in true faith than our parents will refuse us earthly things. Why is it here added, which art in heaven? Lest we should form any earthly conception of God's heavenly majesty, and that we may expect from His almighty power all things necessary for soul and body. Congregation, how do you view your God? Not how should you view Him in light of Scripture, but how do you actually view Him? What's your attitude toward Him? When you think upon God, what is it that comes to mind? Is your view of God such that when you think about Him, you think of one who is cold, hard, and unloving? Or is your attitude toward God, does it fall in on the opposite side of the spectrum so that when you think upon God, you think of one who is a pushover? One who's tolerant. One who is easygoing. This is an important question. Because as we will see in the course of the sermon, our view of God, our conception of who He is, is of enormous importance when it comes to how we are going to pray to Him and whether we will pray to Him at all. Because this Lord's Day is indeed about prayer. 
We have made our way to the third section of the Heidelberg Catechism. The section concerning gratitude, how we can show our thankfulness for our salvation. And included in this third section is the Catechism's exposition of the Lord's Prayer and thus its treatment of this important aspect of the Christian life, namely prayer. Last time we considered the Catechism's introductory Lord's Days to the topic of prayer. And we looked at prayer from a general point of view. This week, we begin the Catechism's treatment and explanation of the Lord's Prayer itself, specifically the address, how we are to speak to our God, how we are to address Him in our prayer. Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven. But though this Lord's Day is ultimately about how we address our God, we need to recognize that how we view our God is going to impact and influence that address. That is, we need to consider the underlying theology here. And we need to come to recognize why Christ taught us to pray to God both as the One who is Father and the One who is in heaven. He did not teach us to address Him only as Father, nor did He teach us to address Him only as the One who is in heaven, but He put the two together. And that's important. And we need to have both in view when we go to God. Because insofar as we focus on one to the exclusion of the other, Father or the One in heaven, insofar as we focus on one to the exclusion of the other, it is going to negatively impact our prayers. We are going to be led astray. And so this morning, we want to look at Lord's Day 46 and our address to God in prayer by focusing on how we need both in view. And so the theme for this morning's sermon is praying to our Heavenly Father. First, we'll look at the fact that He is our loving Father. Second, we'll look at the fact that He is our heavenly Lord. And then third and finally, we'll see how we are to pray in light of both of these. First, our heavenly Father. Second, first, our loving Father. Second, our heavenly Lord. And third, praying in light of both. In prayer, we address God as our Father. That's question and answer 120. Why hath Christ commanded us to address God thus, our Father? And now I wonder if we have any idea how amazing it is that we can speak to Him that way. Because the reality is that in and of ourselves, we have no right to address God as Father. In and of ourselves, we, are, we were children of wrath. But yet, Christ tells us, commands us, call Him, address Him as Father. And Christ commands us to address Him that way exactly because we are, He is now our Father for the sake of Jesus Christ. That is, we are God's adopted sons and daughters. That makes us distinct from Christ who is the natural Son 
of the Father. He is the eternal Son of the Father. And that's the whole significance of that name. The only begotten Son of God. He is the only One who was begotten of God, who shares the same being and essence of as God. So Christ is God's Son. His only begotten Son. His natural Son. And as God's Son, Jesus Christ is the object of the Father's love and delight. That's what we read of in Matthew chapter 3. When we read the whole history of Jesus' baptism, how just after Jesus was baptized, the Father spoke from heaven declaring for all to hear, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He is My Son and I love Him. I delight in Him. And now God spoke that way about His Son in part because He is the natural, eternal, only begotten Son. But in that moment, just after the baptism, that's not the main reason. The Father declares His love for His Son. In that moment, the main reason is that Jesus Christ was willing to come down into this world and to perform the will of the Father. Jesus Christ had just been ordained into His office as it were. And now God is pronouncing His love upon Him accordingly because Jesus Christ was willing to leave His place of glory and to be born of a woman to take upon Himself our sins, our spiritual uncleanness. And to do so, so really that this One who is perfectly holy in Himself was baptized. He had the the picture of the washing away of sins. Why? Because He had our sins upon Him. And it was because He was willing to take our sins upon Him. Because He was willing to come and accomplish our salvation. God pronounced, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And it's also because Christ was willing to take our sins upon Him and to accomplish our salvation that God now addresses us as His children too. His adopted children. For on the basis of Christ's saving work, the fact that He took our sins and paid the debt that we owe, satisfied God's justice, and the fact that, and on the basis of His perfect obedience to the whole of God's law, God now makes the legal verdict that we are righteous in Jesus Christ. He's justified us in Christ. And to go a step further, He then takes us and adopts us as His children, as His legal sons and daughters. And He he brings us into His family and into His fellowship so that we can now speak to this God, address Him as our Father. And exactly because He is our Father, we may know and be assured that He loves us. That's what stands out here in that name. As our Father, our God loves us with a love that we cannot comprehend. And a striking proof of that is found in John chapter 16. When Jesus was speaking to His disciples at the Last Supper, Jesus said to His disciples in John 16, verse 26, 
At that day ye shall ask in My name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father Himself loveth you. And now when we read that, we scratch our heads and think, what does it mean when Jesus says He says not that He will pray the Father for us? And we scratch our heads at that because does not Christ as our High Priest make intercession for us? Did He not already say back in John 14, verse 16, I will pray the Father of thee? Well, in light of those other verses, we recognize that what Jesus says here in John 16, verse 26 cannot mean that He does not pray at all for us. But rather, the point is that He does not have to pray that the Father would love us. Verse 27, for the Father Himself loveth you. What Jesus is saying here is I do not have to procure the Father's love for you. He already loves you. I will pray that He sends the Spirit, the Comforter. I'll pray for you in that respect and in other respects. But when it comes to love itself, and the love of the Father for you. You have no need that I make intercession for you. For the Father Himself loveth you. And that's a reminder to us it's not the case that Christ came down into this world to, to make the Father love us. Yes, it's true. We're adopted on the basis of Christ's saving work. But it's not the case that God loves us on the basis of Christ's saving work, but it was in His love that God sent His Son. That's John 3, verse 16. For God so loveth the world that He, he gave His only begotten Son. God's love comes first here. He loves us as His own. And this love is a truly astounding love. It's a spectacular love. It's a beautiful love because first of all, it's an eternal love. Our God loved us before the foundation of the world. Before we were ever born. Before we ever did anything right or wrong. He set His love upon us. He took delight in us. His love is an amazing love. Secondly, because it's a free and sovereign love. It's not a love based on anything in us. If that were the case, it would cheapen God's love. It wouldn't make it not so great at all because it would be based on something in us. But that's not the case. He loves us because He willed to love us. And that makes His love amazing. Third, His love is amazing because it's an unchanging love. Though we change from day to day, His love for us does not. Not even our sins change His love. If our sin could change His love, He would have ceased to love us long ago. But because His love is unchanging, He is patient. He is long-suffering toward us, His people. And His love is an amazing love forth because it's a, a distinguishing love. God tells us, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated this is not a love for every last single person, but it's a love only for His elect people. And that magnifies His love because I recognize 
There's nothing in me whereby I made myself to differ from the the millions of others that He passed over with His love. As your Father. God loves you. Do you know that love? Is that how you view God when you think about Him as one who loves you? Or to put the, more, the question more accurately, do you believe His love? Do you receive His love by faith? It's important that we view God this way. Because the devil wants us to view God entirely differently. The devil wants us to view God as one who is cold, hard, austere, and unloving. The devil wants us to view God in such a way that we become like the Israelites in the wilderness when the way before us is difficult so that we murmur and cry out, it's because the Lord hated us that He brought us out of Egypt into this wilderness to die. The devil wants us to view God in such a way that when the the storms of life come upon us, we conclude like the disciples, He doesn't even care that we perish. The devil wants us to think of God in such a way that we say with the sinners in Israel, who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burnings? The devil wants us to view God in such a way that we say like that man in one of Jesus' parables, I feared thee because thou art an austere man. That's the conception the devil wants us to have of our God. One who's hard, cold, and unloving. That's how he tempted Eve after all. When he came to her in the garden. Notice that in Genesis chapter 3, notice the name that he uses throughout and the, the twist that he puts on this name The devil comes to Eve in chapter 3, verse 1 and says, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. He does not say, hath your father said, hath Jehovah said, or any other name, but hath God said. And it's clear from what follows, the devil wants her to view Eve to view God strictly as the one who is in heaven. Well, setting aside the fact that He loves her. And that comes out clearly in verses 4 and 5. The serpent said unto her, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Eve, that one in heaven's holding out on you, you know. He knows it would be better for you if you ate, And so he he lied to you. He doesn't care about you. He just wants to protect his own power and his own throne. And what the devil is doing here is chipping away 
At Eve's conception, her view of God, he wants her to view God strictly as the One who is in heaven. As one who's cold and hard and unloving. Is that how you view God? Is that how I view Him? Insofar as we succumb to this temptation, it's going to impact our prayer lives. And really, it's going to keep us from praying. Because if we view God this way, as we, if we set aside the fact that He's our Father who loves us and think of Him only as this intimidating One who's in heaven, we're never going to approach Him. The devil wants us to view God as angry because what child wants to draw near to an angry father? Insofar as we view God that way, instead of drawing close to Him, we're going to turn and run from Him. But there's a still deeper problem. Because when we view God only as the One who is in heaven, and that's the entirety of our conception of Him, what will inevitably happen is that we will adopt a very legalistic viewpoint. We'll succumb to the temptation of legalism that supposes I need to earn my way into His favor. I need to placate this God. I need to appease this God by my suffering. And in turn, we will only become bitter when we realize that there's no way we can possibly earn our way into His favor or gain His love by our own merits. And now you see why it's so important to view Him as Father. As the One who loves us. As the One who loved us so much He was willing to give His only begotten Son, His natural Son, to die on the cross for us. Child of God, He loves you with an eternal, free, unchanging, and distinguishing love. But perhaps you object. How could He love me? I'm such a sinner after all. I, I, I do not love Him as I ought to. I do not serve Him as much as I should. I do not praise Him like I ought to. He could never love me. Well, if that's our thinking, it's contrary to Scripture. Because that sort of thinking has it all backwards. That sort of thinking really robs God of His glory because what saith the Scriptures? 1 John 4, verse 10. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. His love came first. And insofar as we doubt His love because I don't love Him enough, we're inverting the whole order. We're, we're turning this thing upside down. We're 
retranslating 1 John 4, verse 10 to say, here in His love, not that God loved me first, but that I loved Him. And because I loved Him, He now set His love upon me. And that's backwards. That's all wrong. It's contrary to Scripture. His love is first. It's not based on anything in you, child of God. Believe that He loves you. But perhaps you still object. If He loves me, why then is my life so hard? Because based on the circumstances of my life, it sure does not seem or appear like He loves me. But again, that's contrary to Scripture. Because implied in that is that is the mentality, the thinking that we are to judge God's love based on our circumstances. But what saith the Scriptures? Well, let's read the, the rest of 1 John 4, verse 10. Here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The Father manifests His love in the sending, in the giving of His Son. And what that means is that we are to judge God's love not based on the circumstances of life, but based on the cross of Christ. That's so important. I'm going to restate that. We are to judge God's love not based on the circumstances of life, but based on the cross of Christ. If you want to know whether He loves you, you look at Calvary. And only then, having believed that He loves you, may you try to figure out the circumstances of your life and how they fit into God's plan. He's your Father, child of God. And He does love you. And we are to know that love, to believe that love, and to think upon Him in this way. But now, He is not only our Father. Because at the very same time, He is the One who is in heaven. He is our Heavenly Lord. And that too is a part of our address to God in prayer. That's question answer 121. Why is it here added, which art in heaven? Jesus did not leave it at just Father, but He immediately adds the words, which art in heaven? Reminding us that this God is the One who dwells in the heavens. His throne is high and lifted up. It's fixed in the heavens. This God is the One who dwells in the light which no man can approach unto. And He dwells in the heavens exactly because He is the, the heavenly One. He is the God who is pure spirit. He is light and there is no darkness in Him. He is the God of infinite majesty and glory. And as the One who dwells in the heavens, that means He's Lord above all who are beneath Him. He's the one who's in control of all things. 
He's the one who looks down from His lofty throne upon the sons of men and we appear as grasshoppers before Him. He looks upon the nations and they are like a, they are as a drop in a bucket. And He is the Lord exactly because He's the one who created all things. He, he brought all things into existence. He's the one who is in heaven. Which is to say He's the one who's set apart. This God has no equal. There is none to whom we can compare Him. And now just as Him being Father means that He loves us, so too the fact that this God is the One who is in heaven means He commands us. He tells us how we are to live. He does so as the great lawgiver and judge. God is the one who determines what is right and wrong. His standard of righteousness is the standard for every creature. And He is the judge who punishes the wicked, who rewards the righteous, and does so as the one who is holy and righteous, the God who is just in all of His judgments and is so holy that He will not tolerate even the slightest infraction against His law. And God communicates this law to us. He's made known His law to us. For He's written the works of that law, of that law upon the hearts of all men so that even those who have never heard of the Ten Commandments, never have read them, nevertheless know God's law and are a law unto themselves to use the language of Romans chapter 2. And what is more, God gives to each one of us a, a conscience. He gives us the ability to understand the difference between right and wrong so that the overall point is that He has commanded us to serve Him, to worship Him, and to do all to the glory and the honor of His name. And He does this exactly because He is the One who is in heaven. He's Lord over all. And again, it's important that we bear that in mind. That that's a part of our conception of who God is. Because the devil would have us to think otherwise. Because the devil would have us to believe God is a mere pushover. One who is tolerant. One who is easygoing. Who really does not care how we live our lives and is just there to make our lives easy. And now in saying that, we are not contradicting what we said in the first point. Because it is true that for some, the devil wants them to focus entirely on the fact that He is the One who is in heaven. But the devil is subtle. The devil is crafty. He knows that we're each different from each other and different people in different scenarios call for different tactics. And so, for some of us, perhaps the appropriate tactic is to get us to focus entirely on the fact that this God is the One who is in heaven to the exclusion of Him being Father. But for others, 
the tactic that the devil uses is to have us focus exclusively on him being father while leaving out, setting aside, the fact that he's the one who's in heaven. The devil would have us lose sight of his majesty, his glory, and his greatness. And for the majority of us, the devil uses both tactics but uses them at different times in different places according to what he's trying what sin he's trying to get us to commit and there are times where he wants us to think of god as a twisted distorted version of a father as one who's just there to make your life easy if you want something tell him and he really ought to give it to you And what is more, He is not all that worried about how you live your life. He's your Father. He loves you. It's okay if you sin a little bit here or give in to that temptation there. He's Father. He'll he'll overlook it. He'll turn a blind eye to it. He'll, He'll sweep it under the rug. This is how the devil approach Jesus Christ when He tempted Him in the wilderness. You see, there's a contrast between the temptation of our first parents and the temptation of our head Jesus Christ and how the devil approaches them and which aspect of who God is the devil wanted them to focus on. With Eve, The devil wanted all of the focus on this is the One who's in heaven. He's cold. He's hard. He's austere. Hath God said, said the devil. But when He tempts Jesus Christ, He uses the opposite tactic. Did you notice that? In how the devil spoke to Jesus? In those temptations, what did he say to him? If thou be the Son of God. Verse 4, verse 3 rather, and when the tempter came to him, if thou be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Verse 6, if thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. If thou be the Son of God, if He is in fact your Father, surely your Father does not want you to suffer. Why be hungry when you're the the Son of the Most High? Just turn these stones into bread. Feed yourself. God doesn't want you to suffer. And if you're worried about going against His will, well, you need not worry about that. You are His Son. He he loves you. We all heard it. We were there at at your baptism. We all heard Him say, this is My beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. It's okay if you sin against Him. He'll turn a blind eye to it. He'll overlook it. It will still be okay. Because He's Father. He loves you. That is how the devil tempted Jesus Christ. And now praise be to God 
Jesus saw through the lies. He understood full well what the devil was doing. And that comes out in His answers. We do not have the time to look at them in depth, but in His answers, it's clear Jesus recognizes yes, He is Father. The One who loves Me, but at the same time, He's the One who is in heaven. And I came to do His will and not My own will. I came to keep His will perfectly. To do all of His commandments. And I came to suffer for My people who have failed to keep His commandments perfectly. I came to bear their sins upon My shoulders and all the suffering that that entails. Jesus would not be turned away from the path leading to the cross. He continued steadfast because He saw through the lie of the devil. How are we doing in that respect? Have we succumbed to the temptation to set aside the fact that He is the One who is in heaven and to think of God as this twisted, distorted version of what a Father, a Heavenly Father, should be? The nominal church world has. What is the nominal church world always saying? God is a God of love. And that means He accepts you for who you are. He, he's okay with your sin. And the devil wants us to think of God that same way. And when the devil succeeds, what that will ultimately lead to is antinomianism. Just as focusing exclusively on the fact that He's the One who's in heaven leads to legalism, thinking we have to earn our way into this God, into the favor of this God, so too thinking of Him strictly as Father, setting aside the fact that He's the One who's in heaven, inevitably leads to antinomianism, to thinking, it's okay if I sin. He's going to forgive me anyway. It's okay if I go down this sinful path for a time because He's my loving Father. He'll still be there. He'll take me back when I'm ready to go back. And that's why it's so important to remember He is the One who is in heaven. He's the God who is holy and righteous. He is the just lawgiver and judge. And our sins are indeed provoking, offensive, and displeasing to Him. In fact, because we are His children, if anything, our sins are worse. Because we sin against grace. We sin against His love. And that makes our sins all the worse. And while He does love us, that love does not preclude, in fact, it includes the fact that He will discipline us 
when necessary. It's true. God's love itself is unchanging. Our sins do not change His love. That is, they do not change the purpose and the act of His will to love us. But they do change the manifestation of that love, the way that love is dispensed to us, and that when we walk in sin impenitently, our Father rebukes us. He chastens us. He hides His face from us. And He does so exactly because He loves us. And so you see the wisdom in what Jesus taught us to pray when He instructed us to pray to the One who is our Father who loves us and to pray to the One who is in heaven. The One who is holy and righteous who commands us to live according to His law. And it is crucially important that when we pray, we pray in light of both. When we pray, we are to pray in light of the fact that He is our Father. Because it's knowing Him as Father that gives us confidence in prayer. The confidence that He will receive us into His presence. That He's not going to turn us away, but that we're welcome at His throne of grace because we are His children in whom He delights. And knowing Him as Father gives us confidence that He's going to provide for us. That He will grant us all things necessary for body and for soul because He's our Father who loves us. He's committed Himself to caring for us. So knowing Him as Father gives us confidence. But what is even more basic, what's even more fundamental is that knowing He is Father is what propels us to go to Him. This is what makes us want to commune with this God in prayer. Because when we recognize that He is our Father who's loved us, there's nothing in all the world that we want more. Knowing that He loves us, we now love Him in response. And a part of that love is speaking to Him. And that means insofar as you have been avoiding Him, child of God. Meditate upon His love. And as you meditate upon His love, you will find that whereas you wanted to run from Him before, in the light of His love, you will not be able to stay away for a moment. So we pray to Him knowing He is Father. At the same time, we pray to Him knowing He is the One who is in heaven. And it's knowing He's the One who's in heaven that's going to give us the reverence that should characterize prayer. Father produces confidence. The One who's in heaven, that produces reverence. So that though we do come boldly before His throne of grace, nevertheless, we never come flippantly. Instead, we come with our heads bowed, 
on bended knee if need be. We come to give Him praise, to adore His name, recognizing there's no God like unto this God. He's the One whose throne is fixed in heaven. But now what is more basic to that is that recognizing that He is the One who is in heaven reminds us that we come to Him only in and through Jesus Christ. He's the God who is in heaven. I have no way to approach Him of myself. I have no right to stand before His throne of grace. The only way to the One who is in heaven, the only way to the Father, is through the Son. Do you see how important our theology is? When it comes to prayer, do you see the danger of focusing on one aspect or the other of who this God is? And do we now recognize the need to have a balanced view of this God even as Jesus Christ has taught us to have a balanced view? Well, insofar as we find ourselves drifting to one side or the other, what we need ultimately is to go and stand at the foot of the cross. Because it's the cross of Christ that most clearly displays both of these aspects of God and how they come together as one in Him. Because at the cross, we are reminded He is the One who is in heaven. We're reminded that He is the divine lawgiver and judge. We are reminded that He is the God who is a consuming fire, who does not turn a blind eye to sin, who does not sweep sin under the rug. He's the God who punishes sin. And that's what happened at the cross. And that God punished His natural and eternal Son whom He loves. Christ had to satisfy His justice. Christ endured the wrath of God for our sin. And so if we're tempted to forget the fact that He is the One who is in heaven, then look at the cross and remember what Christ had to endure. But then also look to the cross and be reminded He is your Father who loves you. He's loved you with an everlasting love. He set His love upon you in eternity. He predestinated you unto adoption, unto sonship. And having chosen you to be His sons and daughters, He was willing to pay the greatest imaginable price to make you His own legal sons and daughters. And that's what we see at the cross. And that God provided a substitute. One to take our place. 
so that the one to whom it had been said, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased to Him was the wrath of God given. He was forsaken on our behalf so that we might be delivered from our sin. There is no greater love imaginable than that. And so if you doubt His love for you, if you doubt He is in fact your Father, make your way to the cross. Sit down at the base of it and meditate upon what He was willing to give for your salvation. And having both of them in view, pray, Our Father, which art in heaven. Amen. Our Father, which art in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word as it reveals Thee to us. As it gives us a proper understanding of who Thou art and how all of Thy divine perfections are one in Thee. How there's no contradiction between them. How they are in a perfect harmony in Thee, the one true living God. Help us to know Thee. And may that knowledge of who Thou art have bearing upon the way that we live our lives and how we even speak to Thee in prayer. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.